0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is righteousness. Your word is holiness. Your word is accurate. It is able to divide our soul and spirit. It is able to pierce our soul and spirit and able to get deep into our bone and our marrow, the bone and the marrow of our soul and pick apart the ways in which we need help It reveals our weaknesses. It reveals our sin. And it doesn't just reveal it and say, Aha, you're bad people. It reveals and says, And I am the answer. There is not just recognition of sin, but there is an answer, and it is in Jesus Christ alone. So we thank you, Father, for your Son Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his continued ministry to intercede and be an advocate on our behalf to be with us, to meet with us. We we repeat Galatians 2.20, does not I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who gave his life for me. That is our call and that is what we want to be. People who are marked by the character and likeness of Jesus Christ. So use your word this morning, Father, to do as you will and make us like Jesus. We pray this in the only name that saves, the name that is power, the name that is strength, the name that is glory, the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. My uh, graduate degree that I got was 120 credits. It took me four years to complete. Now before starting that program, and I had just finished my undergrad, so I was like kind of burned out on school, and was looking for maybe an easy way out. So, the program that I was looking at, 120 credits, four years, and before I took it, I found this other graduate program. This program was a Master's of Theology, and I was like, that sounds way cooler. And it's only 36 credits. I can finish this thing in a year and people will be like, oh, do you have a master's degree? are like, oh, I do have a master's degree. I got, you know, I have 36 credits. They don't, like, no one asks you, like, how many credits was your degree? How much time did you spend doing it? Right? I was like, oh, I'll just have the graduate degree and I can move on. It's 36 credits. I can knock this out in a year. And I was so, so motivated to get it done quickly because I'd already spent so much time in school that I convinced myself not only was it going to be faster, but that I had to have that degree. I was like convicted that this is definitely the right choice. I'm not, I'm not being you know lazy, I'm not being you know, wimping out on the big degree. I, I really think this is the best thing for me. I'm convinced of it. So I called the school and I said, I would like to take this degree. And they told me, you don't qualify because you can't enter the 36 pre- credit program until you complete the 120 credit program. Suddenly, my conviction to finish that 36-credit degree uh, no longer existed. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to finish the other one. My point is that there are some things in life that require getting qualified. And those things are usually worth the qualifying process. Would you want a doctor who didn't go to med school? Because they have to go to med school to qualify as being a legitimate doctor who can actually help you? Do you want a mechanic working on your foreign car if he's only qualified in domestic vehicles? No. Qualifications are how we weed out those who can and those who cannot. And in today's text, Colossians 1 12, we realize that all of us, all people, cannot. Unless God qualifies them. So in Colossians 1, verse 12, Paul writes, giving thanks to the Father. Now that part of the text right there, we addressed that last week. We talked about how giving thanks to the Father is because of the joy he gives us of his presence, and then the joy in his presence produces thanksgiving. Thanksgiving produces joy, and joy comes from thanksgiving And so we've got this, like, idea that why do we give thanks to God? Because God gives us a gift, and the gift is God. That's the gospel. God is the gospel. Christ is the gift, so the giver of the gift is the gift itself. So the gift is the giver. And that, we get God in Christ, that's the joy of life. That's the joy of the Christian life. That's our joy. That's what makes us different. And, and, and if, if that is true, then we ought to be giving thanks to God. And so then, jumping off of this idea of the Father, Paul dives into a deeper explanation, more specific explanation, of why we're giving thanks for that reality. What exactly has the Father done, or is doing, or what did he do that creates this need to give him thanks? And what we see here in verse 12 is he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, this idea of light is really important. I'm not going to address it until next week because in verse 13, we get this contrast of light and darkness. So we'll deal with that later. And what I want to focus on today is what the Father has done for us. He has qualified us. Now, the Greek word for qualified literally means to make sufficient or to make adequate. And now that is a vital reality to address, and I will address this idea of being qualified. But being qualified doesn't make sense until we understand the rest of the verse. So let's address the rest of this text. We get to, Paul says, share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, this word share reveals that we are receiving something. Someone is sharing something with us, and it's something that they possess. When we teach our children to share their toys, we're teaching them to give up something that is theirs so that someone else can enjoy it. And in this case, Jesus is the sharer. But Jesus doesn't just give up his inheritance with us like a child would give up his toy. The child gives a toy away to share it with someone else. That child can't play with the toy anymore. That's not what it's like for Christ. Christ doesn't just give us his inheritance and then leave. He shares it with us in, the, in that he spends that eternity, that inheritance, with us. It's like inviting another family to join you on your vacation timeshare. Right? You get to enjoy the vacation And by inviting others to come with you, you share that blessing with them and you you yourself get to fully enjoy it as well. You're both fully enjoying the experience. That's how Jesus shares his inheritance with us. That's what Jesus does for us. He shares his eternal inheritance. He shares his eternal presence, his eternal reward, his eternal joy, his eternal Pleasure is the eternal satisfaction of being in God's presence and he shares his eternal glory. He shares his eternal perfection in us. He shares the eternal body, gives us new resurrection bodies. He shares the eternal creation everything, the full inheritance. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan said, Jesus, Jesus, look at all. He took him up on a a high high spot and he said, look at everything, all the land, all this glory, all the kingdoms I'll give them to you if you just submit to me right now. Telling Jesus, skip the cross, man. Skip the cross and take glory now. And Jesus knew the fullness of glory required his death and his resurrection. And Jesus looks out over the land and goes, you mean skip the cross and have you, Satan, give me what I made? I don't think so. Because Jesus knows that when he looks out on the cross, all that land, and sees all those kingdoms and all that glory on earth. He goes, that's nothing. <laughs> that is nothing compared to what I am going to make the second time. When I do away with this earth and create a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth, you don't even know, Satan, how glorious this will be. And it will be mine. And I will own it and possess it if I go to that cross. Because I will get God's glory. The Father will give me his glory. And then, not only that, I will share it with my people. Those who love me. Those who commit their ways to me. Those who believe in my gospel and follow me will get that glory too. Because honestly, as much as you think you'd be up on that high spot looking at all those kingdoms and you know you're talking to Satan, he's like, hey dude, I'm Satan. Would you like all these kingdoms? All of us say, I would never do what Satan tells me. I would never take what Satan gives me. It's Satan, I'm not dumb. I know that would be evil, bad. Jesus was tempted by Satan. Jesus, he resisted the temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you can't tell me you wouldn't be tempted, even if you knew it was Satan. To own and rule all the kingdoms of the world, I'm sure we could find some justification to do that. That's a hard reality to swallow because that's who we really are deep down without Christ, is we are far more easily swayed into sin. And even with Christ, we still live in that hardship and that reality. But that eternal pleasure, that eternal reward that Jesus sees, he looks out across all the land and he goes, I got something better. That is what he shares with us. We didn't earn it, he did. And then he shares it with us. And he has to share it with us or we can't have it. And so this inheritance inheritance is no longer just his Notice that Paul identifies the inheritance in verse 12 as being of the saints. Not for the saints or with the saints or to the saints, but of the saints. That word of is very significant because it shows possession. That inheritance is a possession of the saints. That's you and me. That's all believers. That's Paul. That's Peter. That's John. That's Jesus. That's me. That's you. We possess that inheritance is of the saints. We're the saints. The Greek word for saints is hagias, It means holy ones. That's who we are. Holy. Holy people get to spend eternity with a holy God. And this is our inheritance. And once we are, verse 13, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, we become possessors of his eternal inheritance. So the analogy of inviting another family to join you in your uh, vacation timeshare, that analogy no longer holds up. Instead, what is more accurate would be that you don't just invite this family to come on vacation with you. You literally invite this family to come and you include them in your timeshare. Now they own part of the timeshare. Timeshare, right? You're sharing the time with these people. Now they have equal ownership in this vacation and they can go whenever they like. They can enjoy it however they would like. That is a more accurate picture of how Jesus shares his inheritance with us. He doesn't just invite us. We're not just guests. This is heaven. This is our home. That is why Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Think about the word citizenship. When Paul was was first imprisoned by the Romans, they were like, oh, we're going to get this Jew, Paul. We're going to nail him down. And Paul's like, I'm a citizen of Rome. And they're like, oh, Dang. Dang it, Paul, you can't be, ah, we can't do the things we were gonna do to you now because they valued Roman citizenship so highly. Like, dude, if he's a citizen of Rome, there's certain things we can't do. We gotta give him a fair trial. That's the Roman law. Think about our citizenship in the United States. We have great pride in our country, That's good. We should have great pride in the land that we live in. The Israelites had great pride in the land that God gave them. You can't tell me that God didn't give us this land and this freedom to worship him. This is a blessing from God. I have great pride, not more pride than I have in Jesus. That would be sin. But I have great pride in a free country that I live in. I love America. I don't put flags on the back of my truck, but I love America. (laughs) And if you do, that's fine too. I don't care. And think about the, our citizenship. We have equal rights, right? We have equal opportunities. We have equality as citizens. If you lived in Mexico your whole life and then moved to America, you're a citizen. If you have full citizenship here, you're just as much a citizen as I am and I was born here, right? It doesn't matter where you're from. If you're a citizen here, you're here. That's the same reality of the kingdom of God. And think about how we take ownership. We take ownership. We vote. We speak our voice. We protect our freedoms. We take up arms against tyranny. There's a whole bunch of ways in which we express, I have, I have conviction and I have belief in my citizenship and we share it equally. That's the kingdom of heaven, but glorious and more gloriously and more freedom and no sin. It will be our new home, our new dwelling. We will not be guests in heaven. It will be our eternal dwelling. It will be our new place of residence. And think about how good it feels when you come home from like a late night or like a long evening at some event, whether you like say go to like a Friday night football game or you go to a movie with your family or you go to some dinner with some friends or spend some time out doing something fun and you're out for hours and, and just that feeling of how good it it feels to just get home, right? You get home, take off your shoes, you get comfortable, you put on your, your sweatpants and your hoodie and your comfy socks and you sit down and you just relax in your own familiar and comfortable space that is all yours. Don't tell me that's not one of the best feelings in the world, right? Even for you extroverts who love to be out and about with people and talking and love to be at the party, it still feels good to just come home. You know what the best time of the week is for me? Literally, my favorite time of the week. After church. When I get to go home, take off these shoes after standing for 52 minutes, and and putting on sweatpants, and sitting down on my couch, and trying to keep my eyes open, and going, I don't have to! And just falling asleep. Like, just that relaxation. Do I love being at church? Yes. Is... I love preaching, it's, it's my favorite I shouldn't say that after church is my favorite. I love being here at this point. This is my favorite time in my life because you ask me to talk to you for an hour and you don't get to talk back. <laughs> you just have to sit there and listen to me and I love that. Uh, but as much as I love that, it's, it's very exhausting so to get, go home and get the rest. Just, I just love walking into my home. It's home. That's why we say home is where the heart is, right? Like, just that's where you're from. That's where you go. It's relaxing. It's comfortable. It, and, and that feeling doesn't even compare to the at-home relaxing pleasure that we will experience in God's presence in heaven when we enter eternity. It will be new to us at first, just like you're new. like when you buy a new house. It's new. It's not comfortable yet. It's not really home yet. But after about a year, you're like, oh, yeah, this is it. When we get to heaven, it's not, we're not going to be like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable here. We're going to be instantly without sin. And we're going to be instantly filled with an unspeakable joy in the presence of Jesus. And we're going to be like, this is it! This is the home. That's why Paul says we look forward to our future home, our citizenship, that place that we're going, heaven. That's where we're from. That's our home. We're foreigners in this land. This isn't home. Your house isn't home. Your couch isn't home. Your bed isn't home. You're borrowing it. It's an Airbnb for 80 years and then you go home. To your real home, to your real comfort, to your real place, to your real security, to your real peace, to real joy, to genuine freedom. I mean, the, you know, that freedom you get that you can go home, take off your clothes and walk around in your underwear. That's freedom, man. There's no freedom like that. Right? That's, heaven will be better. True freedom. We don't know freedom like that. Additionally your relationships with the rest of the saints in heaven will be, now this is a good, <laughs> for those of you who are introverted and quiet and shy and you don't think of yourself as a very friendly person, you think of yourself as nice and friendly, but you're not an outgoing, spoken person, outspoken person. You, if you think that, like, if you think, if someone invites you to a party and you're like, Ugh, and you get a little anxiety, for those of you who are anxious about, uh, you know, social interactions and things like that or, or groups of large people, you're going to love heaven. You're going to love heaven because it will be the biggest party you've ever seen in your life. And here's the best part. God will fix all of that thinking in your mind that you feel about like, I don't want to be around lots of people right now. That will be heaven. It will become comfort and peace. Your relationship with the, he- with, with the saints in heaven will be comfort. It will be honesty and purity and true and holy and peaceful and enjoyable and social. There will be no anxiety. There will be no discomfort. There'll be no social stress. There'll be no introversion. There will be moments and periods and times of peace and comfort and, and maybe getting away and, and getting that rest, restoring time with the Lord, but there will be no social anxiety. Introverts, heaven is where you want to be. Extroverts, in heaven, when you meet Jesus, he will shut your mouth. <laughs> He will put his lips on your mouth and go, don't talk about it, just quietly enjoy it for a moment, (laughs) because we all will get fixed in heaven, and it will be a home and an experience we've never understood before. So that is what we get. That is what we look forward to, that inheritance, that eternal home of comfort, peace, joy, perfection, beauty, and glory, and Christ Psalm Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. That's what heaven is, the presence of Jesus. And that's what we get. But, how? How do we get it? Why do we get it? We get it because of verse 12. The Father has qualified you. Our Father made us sufficient. He made us adequate for His eternal home. And it's His home. He made it. He makes it. He owns it, just as He owns all of creation. In Job 41.11, God says, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Just as He owns all of creation, So he also owns the creation of his new heaven and new earth that will be a magnification, the greatest magnification that can be seen of his glory in which we will dwell eternally in perfect joy, peace, comfort, without sin and without hardships. I mean, think about the glory of God and how, like, at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, when the apostles see Jesus transfigured into glory, and they're like, uh... And Peter starts talking and God's like, shh, Peter, shut up. He literally shuts Peter down. He's like, just, just see this. And it's awe, awe-inspiring. It's like when Isaiah meets, meets God in Isaiah 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and Isaiah is in absolute awe at the glory of God and there's angels surrounding him and they're covering their feet and their eyes and, and, their, and their wings are making them float and they're saying and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and they're just worshiping him in his glory and his, the train of his robe fills the temple and the, the temple shakes at the glory of God and Isaiah's like, What? In the universe, am I doing here? And he literally says, woe is me. He's in awe. That's why we call him an awe-some God, because he inspires awe. His glory is unthinkable. He only showed Isaiah a glimpse of his glory, and Isaiah fell on his face and said, woe is me, what am I doing here? And you know what God's answer was in Isaiah 6, verse 7? He's like, basically what he communicates, I'm going to, I'm not going to, this isn't in the text, but this is the meaning of the text. When Isaiah falls on his face and says, woe is me, I don't belong here. Woe is me and woe is my people. What am I doing in your presence? This glory is too great for me. I don't belong in it. I am just a sinner. And God's response, exactly. So he takes a tongue from And and from the altar, with the tongue, he picks up a coal from the altar altar, and touches Isaiah's lips. And what that signifies is sacrifice. The altar signifies sacrifice. And from the altar, from the sacrifice, touches Isaiah's lips and says, now you're qualified. Because the place of sacrifice is has created a way for your qualification. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus. How Jesus qualifies us to stand and kneel and worship God in his presence and in his glory. God qualified Isaiah, and Isaiah was with his face down going, what am I doing here? And if you think, and if Isaiah thinks that that glory is amazing, he's really going to be blown away when God creates a new heaven and a new earth that we dwell in for eternity. I mean, I literally can't wait to go to Isaiah and be like, dude, dude, so I've been reading about you. What was that like? And he's going to go, what was what like? What was seeing God himself in the glory like? He goes, dude, he's right there. This is better. What are you asking me about Isaiah 6 four? This is better. That's going to be his answer. So. God owns all of creation. He owns his glory. He owns this eternity that he's going to give to us. The reality is that we do not belong there. We're sinners. We are imperfect. God is holy God is perfect. The perfection of his holiness requires that anything unholy or imperfect cannot dwell in his presence. Meaning if we are to dwell in his presence and have this eternal inheritance and the comfort of his never-ending home in joy, then we must go from not belonging there to belonging there, from unqualified to qualified. We must go from unholy to holy, from imperfect to perfect. So the reason that I say that it is a vital reality to understand this verse that he qualifies us, or understand this verse is because this reality of his qualification, him qualifying us in Christ, destroys any notion that God simply lets everyone and anyone into heaven. Now, I don't think that Christians in this room believe that, That's bad theology. It's not in the Bible. God doesn't just let anyone into heaven. We know that to go to heaven, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to put your faith in Christ. We all believe that. But this idea of being qualified all of a sudden makes the qualifications for heaven a little more strict. If you want to run the Boston Marathon, you can't just sign up and run. Do you know that? You know that you have to qualify You have to go into a different race, a a qualifying race, and complete that race in a certain amount of time to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Not just anyone can get in. You have to be qualified or adequate or sufficient to run in that race. And the same is true of our eternal placement. We don't go to heaven because God loves us. That seems to be kind of the, the shtick for the world. Oh, God is love, so he lets everyone in. Doesn't matter what I do. If he's love, he knows my heart and let me in. We don't go to heaven because God loves. We go to heaven because God loves us and proved his love by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And we get to go to heaven when we believe that. That's the gospel. We all know that. There had to be a qualifying factor, and that's the qualifying factor. Love is not a lot enough if it's just this touchy-feely love. Love is enough when love is expressed in sacrifice, which is biblical love. And I hear this argument all the time from unbelievers when they say, and I, hear that, I even hear Christians say this to excuse their sin, this idea of like, well, you know, um, if God is love, and he knows my heart, and he knows that I'm a good person, and I'll just go to heaven that is not the gospel the gospel is that god does know your heart and he knows jeremiah seventeen nine, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked you should have saw this morning i walked in church you guys are gonna freak you guys out so some of you put your feet up that's okay okay i walk in i'm in church this morning Christian comes up to me, and he goes, dude, 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 dude. I'm like, what, 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 what? He's like, there's a mouse in the church. I'm like, what? And then I go out in the and he's like, I told the kids to kill it. (laughs) So there's like 10 kids, the Danielsons and the Barlows and the Lenakers, are running around chasing this mouse for like 10 minutes, and it runs into the sanctuary. It's still in here, so don't panic. I'm just kidding. So... It runs into the women's bathroom. It's chasing the women's bathroom. And they're just like running. They're just pursuing this thing like, like it, you know, well, like it's a mouse, you know? And they're just chasing this thing down the hall and it goes into different rooms. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself, that is how desperate, how, how the way that they're expressing their desire to catch this mouse because they don't want this mouse in this building, which they did catch. And they went across the street and released it. So I'm sure it'll be back. But... <laughs> <laughs> whatever i don't want to tell these children to kill a mouse that's weird um but the the way they chase this little mouse around i look at that and i'm like that is how desperately passionate in our sinful nature we pursue sin it, even if it's running from us like oh i want it i want it where is it? i gotta get it we go chase it with a cup and we try to grab it ah that's desperate wickedness that's us without jesus So you can't tell me God knows my heart and he knows I'm good and so I get to go to heaven. Because if God knows your heart, then he knows you're not good. So in order for us to inherit inherit his glory and his presence, he has to qualify us so that something has to change. The heart has to change. He's got to make a change, so he does. Later in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, he tells us how he's going to qualify us and what he does for us. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's a heart change. That's a hardened heart, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will make their heart of stone and turn it into a, a heart of flesh, a softened heart, and I will cause them to obey. I will change the way they think. I will change the way that they, they believe. I will change their hearts, and I will write their, I will write my law on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Jeremiah tells us, that our hearts are wicked, and then he tells us that God will change our hearts by writing his law on our hearts. And by law, he's not talking about the written law, he's talking about love. Because the law in the New Testament is no longer the written law, it is love. And that love is expressed in written words, the Bible. And it is love. And I get that from Romans 13.10, which says love is fulfilling the law. That's what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law by loving you. How did he love us? Romans 5.8. Died on the cross for us. In loving us and proving that love for us, God qualifies us for his inheritance by his grace. That's grace. We don't deserve it. And he gives it. Our hearts are desperately wicked and sick. We don't deserve it. He does it for us. He qualifies us. We don't deserve it, but we get it. It's beautiful and it's grace. And it's mercy. And it's love. And he has given us something we don't deserve. And our reward for being recipients of his love and grace is the eternal inheritance that he freely gives all of his children. An inheritance that Jesus earned and proved on the cross. And that... That inheritance is reserved only for those who believe the gospel. So not just anyone gets to go to heaven. Not just anyone inherits the eternal kingdom. God does know your heart and he knows it's wicked. And the only way to qualify us for his inheritance is to start by loving us through Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So our qualification... For eternal inheritance of God's glory in joy and peace is for us now in Christ sealed. It is guaranteed. It is promised and perfected. That's Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. So there are three things I want you to, three things I want to explain to you. My intention here, my desire as I preach to you is for three things to happen. I want you to think I want you to feel, and I want you to do. Think, feel, do. So what do I want you to think? I want you to think about this reality that you've been qualified by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, if you believe that gospel, that eternal inheritance for you is sealed, guaranteed, and promised. That's what I want you to think. And thinking that should produce a feeling And the feeling it should produce, and the feeling that I want you to have, should be a feeling of comfort and peace and joy and love and confidence and assurance. But here's the tough question. What should we do? Because everything we're learning here, everything I'm telling you about, is what God has done. We're not doing anything. The only thing I've told you that we do so far is pursue our sin with veracity. That's the only thing I've said so far about what we do, and you don't, I certainly don't want to tell you to do that, so what do we do? Well, we thank God. That's how verse 12 started, right? We thank God for his decision to qualify us for his eternal inheritance that becomes ours. Yes, so we thank God. Verse 12, giving thanks to God, who, and then explain what's he, what he did so Not only do we thank God for the joy we get in Jesus, but we thank God for the eternal joy we get in Jesus. But then we find verses in the Bible that look like that look like our eternal inheritance is on the line. That we might not get to keep it, verses like this Hebrews 3:14 For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end That is a conditional statement That's an if then statement If we hold our original confidence firm to the end then we share in Christ Notice the word share, just like in our Colossians verse, that we share in the inheritance of the saints. So we only get to share in the eternal inheritance of Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, this phrase, original confidence, our original confidence, is a reference to our first believing in Christ for our salvation. In other words, it means believing the gospel. So to summarize this text, if we continue to believe the gospel, then we share in the inheritance of the saints. Now that makes it look like you could lose your salvation. You could believe the gospel and then stop believing the gospel. And that is not at all what the author is saying. What it means is being qualified for inheritance Does not mean that we that we get saved and then go back to living as we always did. Right? What he's saying is that believers will prevail. Believers, genuine believers, will remain saved. Genuine believers will hold their confidence in the gospel. It does not mean that we are free, once we believe, to go back to living the way that we did. That's not what grace is meant for, but that is how we use grace as permission to sin. None of us would say that out loud. None of us would admit that by the grace of God I'm saved in Christ and now I can keep on sinning. Nobody would say that. Christians don't say that out loud, they just live it. And our actions speak much louder than our words. Because I tell my children to do certain things and then I watch them behave like me. And I'm like, oh, I am not as good as I thought I was. Because I watch my family and I watch the people who follow me do as I do. And it's far more revealing about who I am than the things that come out of my mouth. That's just who I am. That's just who we are. And we use grace as an excuse because the reality is we're like, I can sin because it's not like I'm going to go to hell. I already believe. So we kind of excuse it. And then we hide it out of shame, but we still do it. And then Romans 6.1 tells us this. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. And then he repeats it in verse, 6 to, or verse 15 as well because he's emphasizing how important this is grace is not permission to sin nor is it an excuse to sin nor is it an excuse to be like eh, i sin whatever i'm covered by grace god knows my heart god knows where i'm at god understands god forgives me yeah he absolutely forgives you yes you are absolutely covered by grace thank god that we are but to say that is sin which his grace covers Grace is the means by which our sin is covered in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, because I still pursue sin. I'm still like those kids chasing the mouse around the church. I love sin. And I hate it. I hate that I love it at times, and I hate sin, but sometimes I love it. And when I love it, I hate myself for loving it. And I hate to sin, but I love to pursue it. What is wrong with me? That's what Paul says. And that's how I feel. And I'm sure you feel it too. Grace is a means by which our sin is covered. And that's the first part. And that's the part that Christians get stuck in. Grace covers my sin. And we never, ever, ever think about the fullness of grace. We think about the halfness of grace. We live in, as Christians, we live in the halfness of grace. Grace covers my sin. So yeah, I shouldn't have done that sin, but hey man, I'm still going to heaven. God covers me. I love Jesus. Sorry God, I feel terrible about that sin. I repent and I want to change. Yes, but your sin covers me. But your sin covers me. And we just leave it there. Your sin covers me. And what we don't realize, or don't think about, is the fullness of grace. That there's a second half to grace that we don't take advantage of. That grace is also the means by which we become holy. Holy. Meaning grace isn't just for covering our sins, it is also for producing your perfection in Jesus. And we abuse grace when we use it as an excuse for our lack of pursuing holiness because the nature of grace is intended to clear a path in front of you for righteousness. I mean, look at how Paul describes grace in Titus 2, 11-12. And I want you to think As I read this, I want you to to think if this is how you hear Christians talk about grace. Because we talk about grace as, I made a mistake, thank you God for grace. It's true. I do want us to continue to pursue that reality. Let's cherish that truth that by the grace of God, our sins are forgiven even when we chase our sin with veracity. But, But still, let's not forget the second half. Listen to how Paul describes grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that is about where most Christians stop concerning grace, that it saves us and therefore lets us get away with sin. We wouldn't say words like that, getting away with sin, but we feel it and we live that way. But then Paul says that it does more than that. In verse 12, he says that the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I do not hear people talk about grace like that. We talk about grace as covering our rear ends. We don't talk about grace as making us holier today than we were yesterday. That's the half of grace we miss. Grace is not just a sin killer it is also a righteous maker so we don't just get saved and then do whatever we want and then just get to go to heaven That is not the life of one who is qualified for the inheritance of the saints. One who has been qualified for the inheritance of the saints is one who has not only been loved by God and received the gospel and believed, but they are also one who holds their original confidence firm to the end. They no longer look at grace as a means to just get away with sin. They look at grace as a means to grow, as a means to pursue righteousness, as a means to holiness. And if you're sitting here thinking right now, like, well, then are you saying that I'm not saved? Because I didn't know that before today, so that maybe then you're just saying I'm not saved. No, I'm not saying you're saved. I'm saying if you're a Christian and you're, for the first time, you're hearing someone tell you that the Bible says that grace is not just to cover your sin but to make you holy, if you believe that, now do it. Now use grace that way. And whether you do or don't may indicate where you're at with God. That's between you and God and I'm not the one to judge your heart and I'm not the one to look into your soul and say, oh, you're a Christian or not a Christian or, or you're this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian or you're saved or not saved or you're this level or that level. I don't know. That's between you and God. All I know is that grace is not just an excuse. Grace is a creator of holiness. So let's start using grace the way it was intended to be used. Because we think to ourselves, does this mean that if I don't hold to my original confidence firm to the end, then does that mean I lose my salvation? No. It might just mean you were never saved. Because if someone doesn't hold their original confidence firm to the end, then there never was faith, there never was belief, there was never a grip on the gospel, there was never salvation. We see just a few verses later in Hebrews 3.19, the author writes, so we see that they were unable to enter, enter eternities, We enter the eternal inheritance. We see that they were unable to enter because of disbelief. These people who don't hold their confidence firm to the end never believed. Those who do not enter the inheritance do not enter because of their lack of belief, regardless of how much they look like a Christian and regardless of how much they talk like a Christian or act like a Christian. Only faith... Only belief in the gospel is the qualifier for heaven. Well, if that's true, and it is by grace and through faith that we are qualified, doesn't that mean that us having to then hold on to our original confidence firm to the end, isn't that then legalism? You're telling me I have to go do things to keep my salvation. I have to go continue to earn my salvation. I have to be the one who holds on forever to to be or remain or stay saved. Doesn't that mean that we have to live a life now that keeps us qualified for heaven? No. That's not what that means. It means that if God has qualified you, then you will. Hold your original confidence firm to the end. And if you don't, it means you were never qualified. So I asked the hard question earlier, what should we do? And the answer is in Hebrews three fourteen: Hold your original confidence firm to the end. That's what we should do. So I'm going to summarize that word. I'm going to summarize that verse in one word. Obey. Because believing the gospel is obedience. In Acts, it says that the priests obeyed the gospel, meaning they obeyed the command to believe the gospel. Believing the gospel is a command to the entire world from God. And everybody who does not believe the gospel has disobeyed God's command, and that act of disobedience, of not believing the gospel, will cause their eternal suffering. So we obey is the idea obey. Obey the command to believe the gospel and to remain in the gospel and to hold tight to the gospel and stay fixed to the gospel and draw near to the gospel and think about the gospel and read the gospel and pray about the gospel and talk about the gospel and learn about the gospel and teach about the gospel and tell your family about the gospel and tell lost people about the gospel. Tell the world about the gospel. We ought to be a gospel-centered church. If we're not, then what's the point? We have to be gospel-centric. It is the core of who we are. It is the core of what we believe. It is the reason we go to heaven. It is the reason we tell people about Jesus. It's the reason I care if there's empty seats or full seats in this building. The gospel, that's it. That's what believers are about, is the gospel. And people who are genuinely qualified by God through faith and by the grace of God through the love of Christ, genuinely qualified that eternal inheritance those people love the gospel and if they don't they weren't qualified ever and if they are and they love the gospel and they love jesus and they pursue christ and they are passionate about him and yeah we all grow at different rates some people are like gung-ho super wild overzealous for jesus and some people are moving at a different pace fine but the point is that if we're growing in the gospel and we love the gospel and we're genuinely qualified, we will not let go of it until the end or ever. All the way through to the end we will not let go. Why? Because you're strong enough? Because you because of you? Because of your strength? No. Because of Jude 24. Praise be to Jesus who keeps you. Because of him. So our command, our, what you're to do is obey. Not just obey for the sake of obeying. That's not what I'm talking about. This is not a legalistic thing about, oh, just obey, robotically follow all the commands in the Bible and you can prove that you're a Christian. None of that garbage i'm talking about real genuine believers who love the gospel so much they love god's word and they cling to god's word and they read god's word and they grow in god's word and they want to be like jesus they want to grow in jesus they want to see jesus they want to act like jesus they want to share jesus they want to be involved with jesus they love the gospel they want to share the gospel they want to dive into the gospel this whole book is the gospel jesus is the gospel he's the good news The good news is you get God, you get Christ. In a couple verses in Colossians 1, 18, 19, and 20, we're going to see that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. There is nothing lacking in Christ. There's nothing lacking in Christ that we... There's nothing about Christ that we don't... What am I saying? (laughs) The fullness of God is in Christ. (laughs) There we go. And we don't miss anything about the Father in Jesus Christ. So he's what we want. People who have been qualified will do that, will want that, will pursue that. And for people who fall off, like Joshua Harris, who pre- used to be a preacher, one of the guys I used to follow, I got notes in my phone sermon notes of a sermon he did that i was at where i got to meet him talk to him he was one of the preachers i looked up to i was like this guy's awesome joshua He wrote the book i kissed dating goodbye he was followed by tons of youth all over the world when i was like a teenager you know Um, and and then he became a senior pastor at a big church he got to speak at conferences and today he is no longer a christian you know what he never was He does not love the gospel, and he never did. Because if he did, and it was the true gospel, Jesus wouldn't have let him go. John 10. John 6. All that the Father has given me, I will not lose. All who come to me, I will not lose. And no one can snatch them from my hand. John 10. So we have this confidence. And this is why I say obey. I don't say obey to keep your salvation. I don't say obey to prove your salvation. I say obey because that's what qualified believers love to do. John 10, 27, Jesus said, "'My sheep hear my voice, I know them, "'and they follow me.'" He doesn't say, "'My sheep hear my voice' when they read the Bible, and they choose when it's convenient for them to do whatever they want. Is that what he says? No. Sheep hear my voice in the word of God, and they follow me. That's obedience. Now, I realize, we all realize, that we will struggle to do this well. Amen? Yeah, we all will struggle to be obedient. We know that. We all know that perfect obedience is the most difficult thing to achieve in this life. If I told you I want you to build a skyscraper, okay, a skyscraper that is a thousand stories tall and has 20 rooms on each level, and when you build the skyscraper, it has to be able to endure every earthquake and storm that's imaginable, a tornado, whatever, a hurricane, whatever, it has to be able to endure all of it, and when you build it, you get no help. You don't get to hire a crew, just you. You, a single human being, by yourself, have to build this skyscraper that's 20, story, 20 whatever stories tall, 1,000 stories tall, Okay, all by yourself. You would say, that's impossible. That's impossible. It is more possible for you to build that skyscraper than it is for you to live a perfect life. I'm aware that telling you to obey sometimes feels like, oh well, yeah, duh, I know we're supposed to obey. And it's hard to, and we fail at it, so what? Yeah, I know this isn't news, but I want to share something with you. When we do not follow Jesus, when we do not obey, but we are genuinely saved, it does not mean that we suddenly become unsaved. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't reveal that we were never saved. What our failure to obey and follow Jesus does is it draws us back to grace. And in his grace, we are reminded that we are not only saved, that we are, it reminds us that we are not saved by our own power and our own obedience, but that we are saved by Jesus' obedience and Jesus' power. And this is the problem. This is where people stop, right there. We stop with, I'm covered by grace, and then we don't take advantage of the second half of grace, which is the part of grace that is our means that moves us into obedience. And so in the joy of that The joy that you get from knowing that truth, that truth that there is more to grace than just covering your sin, but that grace also produces righteousness. In that truth, in the joy we get in knowing that truth, God motivates us in his grace to continue to keep fighting the good fight, to keep striving for perfection. And yes, I said perfection to keep pursuing holiness and righteousness. That is the mark of a genuine believer. That is the mark of one who is qualified. The mark of one who is qualified is not that they are perfectly obedient. It is that they do two things. One, they pursue perfection as Peter commands us in 1 Peter 1.15. And two, when they fail at perfection, this is the key, everyone, listen up. When we fail at perfection or obedience... They get back up by the grace of God and the strength of Christ and keep going and keep fighting and keep pursuing holiness. And how do we get up and keep fighting? How do we get up and keep fighting? We, we say grace, but what does, what does that look like? What does grace look like? What, how does grace help us? to get back up and see that it, grace is clearing a path for righteousness for us. That we don't have to just live in the misery of our sin and shame and go, oh, grace has covered me. I guess I'll just live in misery for the rest of my life. Thank God for grace. But then by grace, get back up and pursue righteousness instead of sin. How do we do that? Think about it like this. When, we, when someone falls down, what do we do? We go to them and we extend a hand and we help them get back up. We give them something to hold on to. So what do we need to hold on to so we can get back up after we sin and keep pursuing righteousness Hebrews 3:14 Hold your original confidence meaning hold on to the gospel grab the gospel get into the gospel pursue the gospel by the grace of god when you sin and you get stuck in your sin or you fall down or you're not perfect and you're disobedient and you feel terrible and you're full of shame and you don't like how things are going he is telling you run to jesus just run to jesus do you even know how incredibly gracious he is? It is by his grace that you get to run to him. And it is by his grace that when you run to him, he will embrace you and say, I love you no matter what because your behavior is not determined how I feel about you. My, de- my behavior determines how I feel about you. My life, my perfection, my cross, my death, my resurrection, my rule tells me that I love you, not yours. You were never good enough in the first place, and that's okay. That's what grace does. And now that you've failed again, I'm here to tell you I love you anyways because I've made you like me. And with that love and with that grace, it becomes the motivating factor for us to get off the ground, hold on to the gospel by holding on to Jesus to get in the word and move forward toward righteousness. That's the half of grace that we miss. So what does God want us to think? He wants us to think about his grace and love that sent Jesus to die for our sins, to think about how he has qualified us for his perfect and holy, eternal inheritance in glory and joy. Okay, what does he want us to feel? He wants us to think about, when we think about him qualifying us, he wants us to feel joy and peace and comfort and confidence in Christ, an awareness of grace and assurance in our salvation. And what does he want us to do? obey his word but if we don't though his grace covers us because we are truly qualified we need to hold on to our original confidence and let the gospel pull us back up and keep fighting and keep loving and keep giving and keep serving and keep sacrificing and keep killing sin and keep suffering in joy and keep learning and keep 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 growing and keep going The Christian life was never promised to be one of ease. Obedience is the hardest thing you will ever do. And it's not legalistic to tell you to obey because obedience is evidence of genuine qualification. But it's just so hard to do it well all the time. And I'm telling you, enough with the shame. Enough with the, I feel just like, I feel terrible and I feel miserable. Enough with the self-deprecating talk. Enough with the the garbage voice in your head that tells you you're bad, you're not good enough. No, 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 none of that stuff. The, The gospel tells you that, but that's only part of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel tells you, and in that, Christ has made you new. That is not who you are anymore. You're not dumb, you're not stupid, you're not garbage, you're not shame. You're not disobedient. You're not bad. You're good, holy, righteous, renewed, restored, redeemed, loved. You're Christ on earth. And as much as I want to say, now act like it. (laughs) I don't want to say that because you can't. And then God says, yeah, but you can. By my grace. And when you don't, I will help you do it. And then you won't. And then I'll help you do it. And then you won't. And then I'll help you do it. And we call that Christianity. <laughs> but when we fall into the middle there and go, ah, oh, it's okay, this is Christianity. I don't, and then I do, and then I don't, and then I do. What we're missing is the second half of grace that says, I hate you, sin. Die. That's what grace lets us do. So what do we do? What should we do? Kill sin. Obey God, obey his word, cling to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we don't, we aren't what we want to be yet. And it is only by your grace that we are where we are. We thank you for Jesus and for your gospel. Help us cling to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful day.